Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 38, Gender and Jesus. Yes, my name is Lori Krieg. I'm here with my husband, Matt. Hello. And producer, Steve. Good evening. Nice. I like that. Coming in deep. Wanted to change it up. I like it. (laughs) And our guest today is author, teacher, pastor... Pastor, yeah, I'm going to throw that in there. President of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and author of the incredible small group resource, as well as a bunch of other books that were New York Times bestsellers. But we're going to focus on this incredible small group resource, Grace, Truth, and my friend, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Welcome, Preston. It's so good to be on here. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Yeah, you are welcome. I was doing a little reflection of the first time we met, and it was kind of in that like daydreamy phase before the center became the center. Were you still the periphery at that point? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. It was just the periphery. Where's the dad joke button? I don't... When, we not, we should definitely invest in one of those. There should yeah. be a sound effect for that, yeah. But I remember Claire DeGraff, who is... Is he just the... Is he the president? chairman of the board he's the chairman of the board yeah he he was driving us around to all these different meetings (laughs) and he was like president and i were just always hungry because claire i don't think eats he just like inhales air and then preston he's like oh my word you guys are like you're like toddlers i need to just throw snacks at you and we're like yeah could you actually that'd be great (laughs) so I, i live for the next meal i'm constant like right when i finished lunch Ask my wife, like, so what's for dinner? She's like, what do you mean what's for dinner? You just ate. I'm like, yeah, I'm excited about the next meal. So I know wow. it's it's the highlights of our day, which maybe is sad and will be our next podcast. Uh, but hey, Preston, I know we were going to have you on a few weeks ago and we, we had a little snafu with scheduling. And so I got some questions of the week from that week, uh, which was about what were your questions for Preston? Um, and yeah. so I had a couple of them. And um, one of them, I'm, I'm not going to read all the, the paragraphs, but it was from a concerned mom who really wants to love her kid. And so, Preston, can you help us with, I guess, specifically, when and how do you share in this whole like, grace truth when it comes to sexuality and the LGBT conversation? At what point do you share the truth piece, especially if it's like such a close and intimate relationship like your child? That's a, you know, it's such a great question. It's, it's hard to answer from a distance that I tell people whenever I get these really specific kind of relational questions, yeah. my first response or my first, I guess, preface is to say, you know, there's every relationship's different. And b- because I, I would need to sit down with both parties for a few weeks <laughs> and, and really get to know them as persons to know exactly how to respond. But so let me give you kind of a 30,000 foot response. You know, when you're for instance, the question, you know, that came in had to do with a, a gay son who still follows Jesus and yet says the Bible doesn't condemn same-sex sexual relationships. And as a parent, how do you approach this? And, you know, I, I, I even though I'm a theologian, it may sound weird for me to say this, but, you know, as a theologian, I, I you know, I, I often say theological arguments typically don't win hearts. And uh, I don't know why that is. There's probably deep psychological reasons why that is. But if somebody is kind of, you know, fronting a a theological argument for same-sex relationships, um, if you just counter that with kind of logical counter arguments, I've rarely seen that really go well. I think it's incredibly important to know why you believe what you believe and to be able to respond to those arguments. Um, but I wouldn't put a lot of stock or faith in thinking that if you just refute these logical arguments that that will win the heart. Typically, 
people believe what they do because they want to believe what they do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then after the fact, they usually collect enough kind of rational reasoning to justify their belief. But the main thing driving their belief is usually a desire to want to believe in the first place. So I think it's important relationally, psychologically to get down deep. Why are they wanting to believe what they believe? In this case, somebody who is you know, gay and, and wants to say that the Bible affirms same-sex relationships, you know, is it, um, there's probably a deep sense of fear, like, uh, gosh, you know, can I be a Christian and will God accept me um, while being attracted to the same sex? Or, or maybe it's a fear of being alone. Maybe it's like, gosh, I can't imagine a life apart from some romantic partner. Well, that, that to me, that exposes some deeper misunderstandings of what Christianity is. You know, mm-hmm. Christianity doesn't promise anybody that if you, fo- you know, follow, if you come follow me, then you will have sexual fulfillment your whole life. Like it mm. just, that's not in the Bible. Mm. <laughs> that's not part of a Christian worldview. So, so there's, there's, there may be some misunderstandings with a broader picture of what the gospel is that might need to be um, deconstructed or challenged rather than just kind of hitting head on, you know, God says no to gay sex. Like that typically isn't going to go too well. But again, I'm, uh, I'm, I just want to remind my audience I'm speaking at a very at a very 30,000 foot level and I would mm-hmm. really have to know the individual person involved to to really have a better answer to that question. Yeah. That's great. Getting getting to the heart of it. Yeah, getting to the the need, the felt need that the person has as opposed to just taking the words as words right. that are not connected to their reality. Right. Like hitting that need yeah. to belong because if you it's almost like you can hear them, but you don't have to to argue what they're they're throwing at you. If, if it feels like throwing, it's more just like, why? Why are they saying this? So mm-hmm. the second question yeah. that we got from um, a listener is uh, just it's specifically about how the Bible seems to be vague about sex between two unmarried people. So um, mm-hmm. is it vague and, and, and how can we address that, Preston? Well, yeah. <sighs> Yes and no. <laughs> That's a typical scholarly, uh, yeah. wishy-washy answer, right? Yeah. Um, if you're looking for specific commands that say to two unmarried people, thou shalt not have sex, if that's your criterion, then, then yeah, then you're not going to find a lot of answers along those lines. I think they do exist uh, in, in, well... I, so if, if somebody wants to Google, I, I wrote a, a blog called um, Does the Bible Prohibit Sex Outside of Marriage? I'll link and it. If you, yeah, if you Google that, Google my name, it'll take you to my website. And I wrote a blog looking at the verses that do actually say that sex outside of marriage um, is wrong. Now, so some of you listening may say, wait a minute, thou shalt not commit adultery. Or, you know, there's tons of commands that say that. Well, there are a lot of commands about adultery, but adultery is specifically having sex with somebody else's wife. Right. It, it's not specifically ha- to unmarried people having sex. So we need to be very honest with the biblical evidence. There's no virtue. There is mm. absolutely no virtue in taking a verse and misapplying it to this specific question. So let's let's be let's be really honest with the, what the Bible says. But um, so yes, there there's you don't have a lot of like real specific thou shalt not have sex outside of marriage commands given to un to unmarried people. Um, but you do, I mean the, if if you look at a full orbed biblical view of marriage and sex, if you look at what the Bible says marriage is for, if you look at what the Bible says that sex is for. Um, then you come up with, with, an, with I think, a, a pretty clear understanding that 
when we when the Bible talks about sexual relationships, it is by nature that it belongs within the context of of uh, a, mar- a marriage covenant because sex is not reduced to procreation. I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but <laughs> this may yeah. raise more questions. But um, certainly sex uh, should be viewed within a broad umbrella category of procreation. Sex is a procreative act. In other mm-hmm. words, um, not every sex act or sexual relationship will lead to procreation, but I think every sexual relationship should be open to the possibility and the intention of procreation. So, uh, so once we start bringing procreation in view as a potential outcome and one, one, not the only, but one possible goal of, of, of a sexual act, then we're going to, I mean, then I think most people say, oh yeah, you shouldn't just be fathering or mothering a bunch of kids outside of a marriage context. I mean, that, mm. there the sociology is very clear that kids should be raised by a mother and father, by the best case scenario, by their biological mother and father. Hmm. So I think the Bible has that kind of idea in view that that marriage and sex are not disconnected um, acts. Like these should be viewed as one collective whole that belongs within the covenant of marriage. So that, you know, if you ask any, you know, Jewish or Christian writer of the Bible, you know, uh, can two unmarried people have sex? They're, they're kind of going to look at you funny. Like, what, sex is a marriage act. Like mm-hmm. that—that's by definition belongs within a marriage covenant. It's almost like it was so self-evident that it was assumed by the by by Judaism and Christianity, so that the so that we don't need a lot of verses saying, "Oh, by you know, by the way, don't have sex outside of marriage." It's kind of like, well, yeah, of course, that's right. That's kind of assumed if you take if you have a basic understanding of a Christian view of of sex and marriage. So. Um, you know, you have, and I, I'm not comparing this at all, but um, you don't have a lot of commands against, say, having sex with an animal. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have any commands saying don't have sex with a tree. Right. I mean, you, and I'm serious. Like, right. I know I, I don't mean that to be like provocative, or whatever. I mean, right. like, because people would say, like, well, do we need that command? Like, mm-hmm. that's just blending two different categories that just don't really belong together. So that, um, you don't need a ton of verses that say don't have sex with an animal because that's just not what sex is for. It's not just to get off on something, right. you know, somebody or something else right. and don't have sex with a tree. Well, why don't we have a lot of commands there? Because the very idea of sex biblically defined doesn't need a lot of uh, prohibitions to say don't have sex with a tree or a wall or, you know, a hole in the carpet or something. So, right. um, Yeah. No, that's really helpful. That's actually really, you're very good at taking very difficult topics and (laughs) making them like, okay, that makes a ton of sense. That's very logical. So thank you. I'm going to take it away now from these hard hitting questions and just really just, just nail you with these ones though. Um, So what Harry Potter house are you? (laughs) (laughs) I need, I need my daughter to come answer this because I have only read half of the first Harry Potter book That's to it. my shame. We're I am done. so sorry. <laughs> so I don't know what the right answer to that is. Is it? Uh... Okay, you have a lot of courage, so you could be Gryffindor like myself. Okay. <laughs> so that's the right answer is Gryffindor, okay. but you Gryffindor, are very okay. smart, and so you might be Ravenclaw like Matt over here. What are you, okay. Steve? Uh, I said that I tell people Gryffindor, but really I'm probably Slytherin. Slytherin is the evil one, yeah. so <laughs> cunning, that, cunning. That sounds evil. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and I know you took the Enneagram today, so this is another hard-hitting one. What Enneagram number are you? 
Do you know? So I have been looking at Enneagram from a distance for about three years. Yeah. For three years, I've been interested in what in the world is the Enneagram? Right. What's the fad? How come there's people? It's like, you know, it's kind of like you meet people that are, you know, either you like Neil Diamond or you don't, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you meet people that either love the Enneagram or they hate it. Totally. They think it's either the devil or they think it's like right there next to Jesus. And yeah. The so Bible, I've been kind of like, I don't know, like, I don't know what I am, but... Um, so I finally today took two different public free online tests, yeah. which aren't the most reliable, but both of them said, well, one said I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram five and then number two, three. The other one said number, it said three, number two, five. So it's getting pretty close. And by looking at the description of what a five or three is, I think I'm absolutely definitely without a doubt an Enneagram three. Oh, okay. I, say that I wondered I, that. Yeah, I, well, it's it's the achiever one, isn't yeah, it? I don't it know is. too much about it, but so I'll read it to you because I have the descriptions in front okay. of me. So for those of you who are wondering what sort of hocus pocus we're saying with Enneagram, <laughs> just Google it real quick. But there's nine numbers, and everyone will be like, "Well, what number are you?" And you can like go deep into like the wings that you are. So like a five with a th- type two wing or a four wing, and then you can even do. There's like even a wing of a wing. I don't know. It's your wife messaged me. I'm talking to Steve right now yeah. about the wing, and I. I was like, wow, that's really accurate. So a three, <laughs> if Preston's a three, high achieving, charming, and confident. I'm reading this from actually the Relevant magazine because they just did a big article on it. And I was like, I'm going to grab this because I don't want to be Googling things while we're chatting. Uh, but it says threes are the sort of people who tend to light up a room. Oy. They're natural <laughs> leaders, but can be overly concerned with their own image and self-worth. Oh, snap. Do you want to talk about that now, Preston, or no, or yeah? Oh, man. <laughs> well, I, you know, that... <laughs> Matt is a therapist. You can just go ahead and I'm let gonna, it all yes, out. Th- thank you for that. And maybe just I'll us. be in uh, you and Matt's uh, therapy office. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. It's just... You know, I... Um, here, Here's what it comes down to. When I get up in the morning, best case scenario, yeah. after eating breakfast, reading the Bible, hopefully, and maybe praying... I love to make a list of things I need to get accomplished. Yeah. Like right out, just bullet points. Boom, 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 Mm -hmm. boom. If come five or maybe six o'clock, I cross out the last item on that list. That is like the most heavenly experience I can. Well, okay. (laughs) Given the broader topic of our podcast. Just kidding. (laughs) You know, I I, I just, there's something so satisfying about accomplishing tasks for me. And everybody I've told that to just says, oh, well, you're a, you're a, you're clearly a three, you're an achiever. Yeah. As far as like the psychological pros and cons of that, like, do I find my identity in success? Do I, am I jealous of other people's success? You know, I, I don't know. Like, I don't, hopefully n- not to both of those, but in my darker moments, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, of course. um, feel a lack of self-worth if I'm on accomplishing things. So yeah, I think uh, all things considered for better or for worse, I think I am an Enneagram three. Yeah. I love it. So we'll, we'll finish off who, what everyone else is around here, just in case everyone's listening and wondering, even though we've probably gone through this a couple times, but mm-hmm. Steve and Matt are nines, which is, I'll just read this version. It's easygoing and <laughs> oh, peaceable. Okay. Nines hate conflict and do everything they can to personally avoid it and stomp it out. This is a funny version. Whenever they see it. <laughs> just like picture little people with like fires, like stomp it out. Uh, they're driven by a longing for personal and relational calm. So I thought for a long while, I was a three as well. I think I might be like a four three, but it's, I got the mm, three. That's a good defense. 
I got yeah. three in me. <laughs> <laughs> the fours are like the bohemian. They're the creatives. They're sensitive, inspired bohemian types who are able to be honest and self-aware, but they can sometimes oh. struggle to be vulnerable with others, which I'm like, I mean, it's my job. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, I've, I've had to work on it. Okay. So, and then I'll just ask you this last one. If you're like, got a real hankering for a real bad for you snack, a real unhealthy oh, one, what would it be? Oh, I, there's too many to list. I mean, I could, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I can eat triple pepperoni pizza every single meal for the rest of my life. It never gets old. Um, chips yep. and salsa with tons oh, of yeah. salt. Like my friends yeah. make fun of me because I, I salt the salsa and then I salt the chips and then I oh salt each chip that I... I do not um, want to look at your I, like, arteries. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, anything <laughs> deep fried, like mozzarella sticks, oh, deep fried. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Uh, wings, wings oh. just smothered in, in Frank's red hot sauce or something. I mean, just, yeah. I I, I actually, so uh, despite what it sounds, I, I actually try to eat pretty healthy. Um, I eat a lot of vegetables and try to eat lean meats. But if I'm going to splurge, which is usually at least once every couple of days, I am just going to go to town on a pizza or chips and salsa or something like that. I've so seen fried, you, salty food. I've seen you take down like a plate of nachos. I think like a <laughs> oh, couple God, weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Every every meal of every day I could do nachos. Yeah. What it. about like triple pepperoni pizza nachos? Yeah. Is that oh, thing? gosh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my word. I'm like salivating right now. <laughs> you guys are all having a little moment here. Okay. Oh, I'm really oh. hungry. I yeah. see that. Mm. It's like all the hard eyes in this room except me. I'm like, no. Okay. So we. I want to shift to Goofball Island, which have you seen the movie Inside Out, Preston? No. No. Do I need to? Uh, yeah. In order. Yes. So Harry Potter, Inside Out. So next time I see you, both must be watched. Anyway, <laughs> it's uh, basically there's a, a spot in the hero's mind that's called Goofball Island. And so it just kind of shows like a piece of her personality, which is goofy. And so every time on this show, we take a vacation from our problems, which is a line stolen from What About Bob? So we just mash together a couple of movies <laughs> and we just go kind of goofy, even though we've already been there a little bit today. Uh, and we usually take a vehicle there. And so this time we're going to take a horse and a carriage to Goofball Island. <laughs> In honor of the uh, royal wedding or something? There it is. Yeah. No, okay, because we're going to do a secret game that nobody else in this room besides me knows about. And mm. I just kind of want to hold this little secret that no one else knows about and just sit with it. <laughs> it's my Enneagram 4 self. But instead, okay, do you guys know these weird phrases such as kick the bucket? I'm going to mm -hmm. ask you, what is your idea of where the, uh, the phrase kick the bucket originated? And we're going to see who can get the closest to the actual story of where kick the bucket came from. No Googling. So no Googling. Okay. that's the first to... minute. Of you can't ask Jeeves Google. either. No, Jeeves is right out. You just, that's <laughs> yeah, another heresy moment. Okay. So kick the bucket. Where do you guys think it originated? Uh, I think there was a farmer that was milking a cow and she was upset. She kicked the bucket and also uh, inadvertently the farmer's head, like she got him in the skull and he died. So that's where it came from. Hmm. Mm. No, you thought oh. it was, <laughs> Steve was like, oh, I got it right yeah, now. You had me. No, uh, not quite. Okay. Preston, do you have any guesses? I was going to say what came to my mind was farm and milk and a cow. So those two aspects, I didn't have a narrative built around that. But for some reason, I think I'm confusing it with um, uh, uh, a dead ringer. 
Oh. And that has to do with like a, a bell that they would hang with a string down into a grave oh. or something. So yes. if somebody that was buried alive, they would oh. actually uh, ring the bell, yeah. right? Yeah. But, oh. but I, that's a different It analogy. is a different I'm, one. I'm wondering yeah. if kick the bucket is somewhere in there. Mm. I don't so know. instead of yeah. dinging in a bell, they'd kick the bucket and then the grave digger would un- I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> wake it them from their grave. The yeah. Okay. Not quite. I was going to go completely different and say like there happened to be a bucket to catch people's heads when they were like by the guillotine and every time the head got chopped off, the leg would flail and end up kicking the bucket. Okay, oh Matt's God. actually kind of close. Really? Whoa. Really? Okay, but it's actually to do with animals. So this is like a, they don't slaughter animals like this anymore, but they used to like hang them by their neck and then like slice their necks. And then when they would die, they'd flail about and they would kick like the, the contract, like the, the, area hanging around them was called the bucket and so they'd kick it in as they're dying wow oh so, wow matt good job good job Very nice no it's terribly gross okay we'll just do <laughs> went dark on that one very graphic okay <laughs> let let the cat out of the bag i, I mean, want matt to go first yeah, yeah. He's got some really go dark. i mean all, all i can think of where a cat would be in a bag would be in some sort of like you know ritualistic you know kind of occult thing and so if if someone had <laughs> ill feelings about that ritual, they would let the cat out of the bag and everyone would be mad. I don't know. It was a good try. Nope. Okay. Uh, I think it was when parents would get a little kitten, like a pet for their children, but they wanted to keep it a secret for, for Christmas Day. And so they had that cat in a bag to yeah. keep it kind of concealed. And if somebody, you know accidentally let it go then the kids know the secret's out the cat's out of the bag you went that much more really jolly cute. than me yeah, too see? happy too happy okay all right go sad preston let's see if you can take well, it that, home. no no that that i was actually when you said cat out of the bag i got images of national lampoon's christmas vacation <laughs> when the grandma who had like severe dementia mm-hmm. boxed up her cat as a present <laughs> and it was in a box <laughs> they let it out and it got electrocuted because yeah. it ate through the wires in the christmas tree anyway <laughs> That's all I can think of right now. Like the, your, your last response just kind of took me there. <laughs> I really don't know. Okay. So back in the 1530s, people would go to town and buy pigs. So like for food. And I think people would be kind of shady about it because pigs were kind of expensive. And so they'd be like, oh, yeah, sure. Here's your pig. I'll put it in this bag and give it to you. But then they'd sub a cat and then they'd give it to them. And so then they would open it up and then they'd be sad so they let the cat Mm. out the sneaky switch from a pig to a cat wow so very gross and you're like wow i'm so glad i don't live in the 1500s when all these things originated instead of porky they got sylvester yeah okay we're gonna do one more we'll do it fast but this is kind of fun for me okay up to snuff (laughs) maybe you guys will get this one don't google preston i I feel the googling in the air so snuff reminds me of those like um where people would like sniff, was it smelling salts or tobacco even? Like a, oh no, no, wait, wait, wait. No, snuff is actually, it sounds like you're inhaling through your nose, but it's actually like like a dip, like Copenhagen, like chewing mm-hmm. chewing tobacco um, mm-hmm. up to snuff. Mm-hmm. That, that, you're I, on the right maybe path. Maybe that's reminiscent of my baseball days. I don't know. That's <laughs> probably nowhere near what you're looking for, but that's what I got. <laughs> you're not that far off, not gonna lie. All right, guys, what do you want to Okay, well, yeah, I, my first thought was also something that uh-huh. you, you know, like a pinch of something up the nose. Uh, but yes, Preston, I think I, I've heard chewing tobacco referred to as snuff. Uh, maybe 
it's that kind of like people tell sell you some chewing tobacco, but they they mix in some sawdust or some you know additives to kind of <laughs> m- m- fill the pouch, and then you chew it and you're like, oh, mm, I don't think that's quite up to snuff. That's something a little less than what I paid for. A little cat hair, perhaps, yes. up the nose, and no pork. I don't know. <laughs> that's actually a pretty good one, I think. All right, I, Matt. I, any additions? I, well. I didn't actually know what snuff was. I was thinking like cocaine, you would snort it. So I'm probably way off. Okay, the closest one is Preston. So you win the prize. Way to go. A man who who was considered, quote, up to snuff, possessed the money, smarts, and sophistication necessary to fully enjoy and appreciate fine tobacco and tobacco products. Yes. Nailed it. Awesome. (laughs) My snuff days paid off. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, did you really back in the day? Like, were you? Oh, as a baseball player, you had to. I would buy chewing tobacco before I'd buy food. Really? You didn't do like the big wad of gum. I did the big big wad. I would go through a can of Copenhagen a day, and then I got, and then I met Jesus and realized, like, I don't think this is the best way to treat my lips. Okay, that's actually a very good transition. So yeah. we're going to take that horse and buggy back from the dead cats and guillotines <laughs> and tobacco, but maybe we'll talk about it more. And uh, so believe it or not, this uh, podcast is about the gospel and talking about how the gospel is good news for everybody every day. And so Preston, we ask every guest, uh, just when was the gospel first good news and how is it still? Oh, man. Raised in a Christian home, had a mediocre faith until I was 19. And the gospel, honestly, this is, it sounds counterintuitive, but the gospel became good news when I realized that it demanded everything from me Hmm. because only a gospel that demands everything from me is worth following. You know, if it was really a half hearted watered down gospel, I would rather choose my own adventure story, you know? Um, but when it was this really serious radical calling, I was like, okay, either I say no to that or I go all in, but this kind of half-hearted, halfway mediocre Christianity, I just didn't have any time for. I did that for a few years in my teenage years and it just wasn't interesting or compelling. So Hmm. yeah, the gospel became good news when I came face to face with the radicality of following um, Jesus. How is it now? Um, I mean, all, all of that's still true today. Um, I think when you have, when you get married, have kids, have a career, a life, a job, there's the stresses, there's the, there's the, you know, the parable that the worries of the world that try to choke out your passion, mm-hmm. man, I feel that every day. Like yeah. I feel the world trying to choke out my passion and sometimes it wins, you know, yeah. so I really feel that struggle. But for me, there is that confident hope that what Jesus said and who Jesus said he is, is absolutely true. And yeah, and it's kind of really black and white for me. Like either what he says is true or I should just live my own life. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and go with Jesus is true and follow yeah. that path. I love it. Preston, can you quickly share my favorite Preston coming to Jesus story is how you never read a book and then you come to Christ <laughs> and then you like in, literally in the closet, like reading, like a MacArthur yeah. study Bible or something like that. Can you oh, share my... that? Cause I'm like, what? That's so cool. Yeah. And I, to preface this, I, I mildly charismatic. I believe God does do kind of miraculous things, but I, I, I actually use the word miracle really, really rarely and cautiously. Mm-hmm. But I would say that my desire to learn and read was a miraculous act because I hated, 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 hated to study, to read a book, to sit, be inside 
and almost overnight when it saved, I prayed that God would give me wisdom and he didn't give me wisdom, but he gave me a passion to study. And, hmm. and yeah, I would sit there in this little closet with a sh- literally like a shoebox filled with cassette tapes that my mom saved that were like sermons by MacArthur and Swindoll hmm. and Andy Stanley's father yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and uh, D James Kennedy and some of these kind of old school 1980s, you know, preachers. And, and I would sit there and just devour them and then read and study and study and read. And I was like, what's wrong with me? This is so weird. It was almost like wow. something came over me and it, and it did, it was called the spirit of God, you know? Yes. Um, so yeah, to, to this day, that was 20 plus, I guess, 23, 24 years ago. And to this day, I just, I love sitting in a chair a desk with a book and, and, and engaging, like engaging God's word on some level. And, and I just, I love it. I can't stop. So. I love that because you often hear like of, I don't know, just different kinds of gifting, but I don't mm. often hear that. Like just, I wanted to learn. And so I yeah. just think it's so neat. So Preston, speaking of learning, I know you've done so much study around the sexuality and specifically the gender conversation. And again, just that whole grace, truth, small group curriculum. I cannot recommend it enough. The 1.0 is out, which talks a lot just about the sexuality piece of the LGBT conversation, how we can walk this narrow road of grace and truth. And 2.0, which comes out when? When is that? Uh, should be in a couple weeks, couple weeks, probably let's just say mid-June, mid-June. So mid-June 2.0, um, I read it. It's so great. It, it, it deals more with the, the gender piece. And so I'd like to land the plane, well, just hover the plane for a little bit here, just about this whole gender piece. I'm, I'm, I'm walking with several people who wrestle with gender dysphoria or identify as transgender. And I just have some actual hard-hitting questions for you. Like, okay, what, what's the, the theological reality? Are there two genders? Oh man. It's easy. <laughs> Every uh syllable in the gender conversation is can, can be complicated. So here's what I would say. If you just if you just consider what the what the Bible itself says, the Bible says that humanity is created as either male or female and a female should not identify or present as a male and vice versa. A male should not present or identify as female. Now in our modern day uh, language, we distinguish between biological sex and gender. Sex being your sort of sexual anatomy, your reproductive systems, your chromosomes, your genitalia, and so on. Whereas gender is more like your internal sense of who you are, or your, or your expression, your clothing, your mannerisms, or your interests. You know, kind of like, you know, masculinity or femininity. femininity. And the Bible just doesn't really make that distinction. Like a biological should identify as male and female as female. But here's the one, I guess, liberating thing that the Bible does is it doesn't put strict guidelines on what it means to be masculine or feminine. You know, Mm -hmm. often say that, you know, David was being masculine when he killed Goliath. Well, guess what? He was also being very masculine when he sat on a hilltop, played his harp and wrote poetry while his brothers were off at war. Right. Um, Jesus was being masculine when he turned over tables in the temple, he was also being masculine when he wept over Jerusalem and said, I long to gather my people as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Like mm-hmm. the, these sort of narrow cultural stereotypes of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, I think are not, they're just not, they're not biblical. The Bible's very flexible on what it means to be masculine or feminine. But yes, I do. I still do believe. I, I think the Bible's very clear actually that, humanity is divided into either male or female and we should live out that, that identity. So, um, I, I think today there's just, there's so much 
when it comes to the gender conversation, there's so many different voices and so much confusion over what gender is, what masculinity is, what being mm. male is, and whether and and the whole transgender you know aspect of that conversation is super convoluted and confusing. And uh, you know, I just it's it's hard to kind of keep up with how complicated it is. But yeah, biblically. Um, men should live out as live out their identity as men, women as women, a lot of flexibility and what that looks like. So should we, like, if we're walking with someone, should we advise them like to dress a certain way, like to dress in, I don't yeah. know, more feminine or masculine or like, I guess like what's the goal as we walk with people? And then I guess you can always throw, yeah. you know, the surgery, like, is that helpful? Is that yeah. biblical? But like, yeah. what's, I guess like, what's kind of the golden? Cause you know, gender dysphoria is like legit and just all that oh, internal yeah. angst. Such great questions. And I, I don't honestly, I mean, I, I've spent the last year and a half, almost my full-time job is studying this exact topic. And even still, I'm like, man, it's, there's just so many unanswered questions. And, um, you know, there's, there's no, magic bullet you can take to kind of get rid of your gender dysphoria. The, the number one thing I've seen from both uh, people who experience gender dysphoria and also experts in the field of psychology and 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 uh, gender studies and so on is that breaking down the stereotypes is typically a really, really massive first step. Mm. Um, one specialist, his name's Leonard Sachs. The dude is just off the chart brilliant. He's a psychologist. He's not, a, he's not as far as I know, he's not a Christian. Um, this guy's so smart. He graduated from MIT at the age of 19, <laughs> which yeah. like, I can't get into MIT now with a PhD <laughs> at the age of 42. He graduated at 19, got a PhD and an MD after that. The guy's just off the chart brilliant. And his recent book, Why Gender Matters, he, he came to the same conclusion that I'm seeing over and over is that when somebody experiences gender, gender dysphoria, the number one thing you can do to help is expose them to atypical gender behavior. So, mm -hmm. if, so, for instance, if you're a biological male that experiences gender dysphoria, you feel very feminine, you have feminine interests, the number one thing you can do is, is help them see that, yeah, you can have, quote unquote, culturally feminine interests, and that doesn't mean you're a woman. Mm -hmm. It just means that you're either artistic or you don't like sports or whatever. Who cares? Like the Bible never says you have to. Mm -hmm. So um, exposing them to different different um, examples, a broader series of examples of what it means to be male or female, rather than keeping them trapped in this really oppressive kind of narrow uh, set of stereotypes that they think they have to live up to. So that, mm -hmm. that would be, I, I've seen that consistently both among psychologists, um, gender theorists and Christian pastors who have dealt with this area. Mm. Um, you know, as far as transitioning, so I have two responses to that, you know, biblically, theologically, ethically, I can't build a theological argument that would say that anybody should ever transition if they claim to be a Christian. Like, I just, I don't, there's, as far as I can tell, there's no really Christian ethical, at least compelling argument to say, yes, in certain cases, you should try to change your biological sex. Mm. But even scientifically, you know, more and more studies are coming out that show that like, look, even from a secular standpoint, trying to change your biological sex, it's not a, it's not really a, a an airproof solution. Like, yes, yeah, sometimes people, their gender dysphoria is alleviated or goes down. But in a lot of cases, it's, it doesn't really have a major 
it doesn't really help you to think the way, the way you think it will. You, there's still a lot of anxiety and depression mm-hmm. and um, suicidality and everything. Like it's, it's not the mm-hmm. sort of magic bullet to g- gender dysphoria. The problem is, as Mark Yarhouse, who's a Christian psychologist says, the problem is there's really not a lot of other options available that we are aware of. There's, there's no kind of like ABC steps that kind of are, have been proven to re- relieve gender dysphoria. So mm-hmm. we're kind of at a loss a little bit, but you know what, from a Christian perspective, you know, what if somebody who gives their allegiance to Jesus mm struggles their entire life, like suffers their entire life from a condition that is really difficult and painful and, 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 you know, overwhelming at times. Well, that's not outside the Christian perspective of sanctification. Like sanctification is becoming more like Jesus who lived a life of suffering and pain. And, you know, so, so I don't, I, I I just, I I don't like the Christian approaches that, that kind of are trying to alleviate suffering or, or instill comfort at all costs. Like the right. number one value is make sure they're comfortable, make sure you're not suffering. Like I just, that's just not a Christian approach. So even if we don't have some sort of magic pill you can take that gets rid of gender dysphoria, that doesn't mean that it's, you know, um, that, that, well, that does, you know, that doesn't mean that it's not a Christian approach if we don't have a sort of a way to sort of alleviate the, the suffering. So, yeah. uh, but that's, that's, I mean, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it, just beginning a long conversation about a really difficult topic. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if you listened. Our, our, our most recent podcast was with uh, Rosaria Butterfield, and she actually talked about the the role of community, um, yeah. and and how like a lot of times in the LGBT conversation, um, for people to remain single is to remain under like this almost crushing weight of of loneliness and isolation and how the church can really is called to um, not to make them comfortable but to to help be a part of the process of alleviating so they don't you know they're not in this place where they have to be lonely is there a similar stance that that you feel like the church can take when it when it comes to the gender conversation such as being you know one of the places to to really help tear down some of those, you know, cultural stereotypes of your John Wayne and your Barbie, you know, as, as male and female, and, and instead to, to really invite and to allow and to celebrate the, as you said, like non-traditional masculinity or, or non-stereotypical femininity. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's most of our problems with our pursuit of Jesus come down to we don't have rich, vibrant, authentic, honest, truthful, gracious community. Right. I mean, and that's just, I think that just, I, I don't want to simplify things, but most of our Christian struggles are due to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's, you know, being unhappy in a marriage, whether it's being addicted to porn, whether it's being greedy or selfish or sexually immoral or gay or straight or trans or whatever, like, right. <laughs> I, I just, I so believe in the New Testament vision of a, a vibrant, authentic, um, intimate let me just say mm. non-erotic yet very intimate, <laughs> loving yeah. community, mm. even even physically intimate, non-erotic. Like I know we in, in, in 21st mm-hmm. century America, it's like we have no category for non-erotic same sex physical intimacy. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, yes, absolutely. I think that that hands down everybody I talk to that is struggling with their sexuality or gender identity their quote unquote, you know, flourishing or success is largely related to the depth 
and authenticity of the community that they're involved in. Ones who don't have a good community or often authentic relationships with other believers, they're really struggling. Um, Same thing with people that are single and celibate and not having sex and yet saying, I've got a really happy life. I say, okay, tell me about your community. They say, oh my gosh, I've got a vibrant community. I'm over at people's houses. I'm, I'm having coffee with people, lunches. I'm invited over to heterosexual families to watch their son Johnny play baseball on Saturday morning. Like I, I have my family. I've got my community. I have friends. I have deep, intimate relationships. And yeah, would I love to be having sex with everybody I you know, want to have sex with? Sure, whatever. But that, that desire is really tempered massively mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. the level of intimate, non-erotic relationships that I have. So yeah, I, I just... I. I, I think that's so incredibly vital and, and which brings us to another conversation about ecclesiology because I mean, I don't want to be too harsh or too generalized, but a lot of churches just, they don't have that community. I mean, they, they, they're not fostering mm-hmm. that kind of, or they're not prioritizing that kind of community in their sort of rhythm of doing, doing church. And I, I want to circle back actually to that podcast from last week because we, we really leaned in, Preston. I, we talked about how mm. we don't agree with everything Rosaria says, but we really tried to find places of agreement. And I know that's what we're trying to do here in this church world. Uh, but we one of our questions of the week from last week was, how can we lean into community better? How can we mm. be more hospitable? Because she and her husband for the last 11 years have opened up their home every single night to their neighbors and friends for dinner. Every night. It's so ridiculous. Mm. And so I was just humbled reading her latest book. And again, don't I don't agree with every single thing, but I don't need to say that every five seconds. But the pieces that <laughs> were amazing were um, just this hospitality life that it, she and her husband are living. And so Matt and I, in answer to that question of the week, like we're going to kind of close it here. Um, but just how we, we were kind of proud of ourselves before we started that podcast with like, <laughs> I mean, we're doing once a month. We're calling it family dinner, inviting people. And then we're doing... Doing like, I don't know, trying to just be nice. I'm like, I mean, yeah, self five. Woo. Um, but we, <laughs> we opened it up to once a week. And uh, so Saturday nights, it's like, if you're listening to this, I mean, I won't give you my address on here, but hit me up and I'll see if you're super sketchy and then you can come over. No, but we just, for people, for our LGBT friends, for people who are looking for Jesus, we started inviting our neighbors and they gave us some weird looks. And then some of them might come over. Not all of them. We have some great neighbor friends. One of them is my sister. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking. But that is one thing that we are trying to do is, is just have our hosts open. And Matt and I are both introverts. And so a little bit is, is terrifying mm. to us. Um, but I guess just, I don't know how, how Preston, how, how does this conversation, like, what do you think? Is that the answer? Is that a answer to this? Like, what does the church need as it approaches this gender piece in particular and the LGBT conversation? What do you think is like the greatest felt need from the capital C church? You know, it's, it, it is an answer. I, I don't want to simplify it to say if you just have a bunch of great friends or yeah. community, that's going to cause the dysphoria to go away. I'm not saying that at all. But it certainly is an answer. Yeah. And, you know, how to practically do that? I mean, gosh, that would take several more podcasts because I think our, our ecclesiology, our way of doing church, our just idea of church is so entrenched into particular cultural and traditional forms right. that it takes in some cases, and this might, you know, Francis Chan came to the conclusion that it's, it, it, it necessitates a complete overhaul of the very system of doing church. And that's yeah. why he's doing what he is in San Francisco. And I, and I'm almost, 
completely in agreement with them. Mm-hmm. Like I just, w- when we reduce church, quote unquote church, or, you know, our community to lar- largely to a Sunday service that is largely impersonal and, oh, if you really want to get involved and make sure you get involved in the community group. And that's kind of the extent of it. Like, I, I just, I don't know. Like, I just wonder, like, is there, is there a lot more we can be doing to establish rhythms of community that are, re- that are truly countercultural and truly reflective of New Testament Christianity? And mm. I, for, for me, I think, you know, it, ha- it has to begin with leadership. I mean, I think it has to be. Because our our culture is so resistant of that and yet longing for it, I think we have to, at the leadership level, consistently be promoting and embodying a a countercultural way of doing community that is really shocking and life-giving to people. But again, I just, given our current church structures, I I just think our current church structures are largely resistant to that, that kind of deep, authentic vibrant, vulnerable, messy, you know, types of communities yeah. that I think the New Testament is, is, is longing for. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. There's a, <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, well, and yeah. per use, Preston, you are challenging us with gentleness and truth. So you're embodying that grace <laughs> truth. So thank you. <laughs> um, no, really, really thank you for your time. And again, everybody go check out all of his books. But um, for sure, that grace truth small group curriculum, if you want to just dive into this and be like, I don't know how to teach. I, I haven't studied for you. I didn't get the gift of learning when I came to Christ. <laughs> but I have the gift of being able to read and answer questions and put on coffee. Um, um, and then maybe lean into some of this hospitality piece and some of this authenticity that we're we're talking about. And and God, just teach us. We so want to learn how to do this capital C church community walk like Jesus thing better. So Preston, thank you so much for being on. Um, for yeah, well, well, the question of the week though. Oh, hello for next week, and it's not a two first, so we won't do a beginning and end. Uh, but it is when do you feel the most envious slash jealous? Um, and that you know, speaking of Enneagram three, we'll just I'll deal with our stuff here. But Preston, you don't have to. So uh, <laughs> anyway, for all of us here at the Whole in My Heart podcast, we will see you next week. Thanks again for joining us today, and thank you to Dr. Preston Sprinkle, today's guest. You can find out more about him at PrestonSprinkle.com. That uh, recently released group resource is Grace Truth. Hey, if you're not yet subscribed to this uh, podcast, let me again encourage you to uh, subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and then leave a favorable review or at the very least a rating. That'll help us reach more listeners. And you can do the same in your regular everyday conversations with your friends and family. Let them know about the whole In My Heart Ministries podcast. And if you want to answer our question of the week or if you want to interact with us, just encourage you to go to our website, himhministries.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.